Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Born in London, Jared Mankiewicz established his first photography studio in 1963 at age 17, as the British rock and blues movements were about to explode. He started working with the Rolling Stones soon after, touring the U.S. with the then-fledgling band and producing several of their early album covers. Mankiewicz quickly became a sought-after rock lens man, capturing timeless images of major stars from the 1960s through today. Jimi Hendrix, The Yardbirds, Traffic, Marianne Faithful, Elton John, Free, Kate Bush, Eurythmics, George Harrison, Paul McCartney and Wings, Sparks, Sade, Oasis, and countless others. Mankiewicz has continued to work in the music business, as well as contributing to many leading magazines, and also taking prize-winning advertising photos. In 2013, he published a retrospective book, Jared Mankiewicz, 50 Years of Rock and Roll Photography, and he was executive producer of the six-part TV series Icon Music Through the Lens, which aired on PBS in 2020. Well, Jared Mankiewicz, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. We really appreciate your time today. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Um, I want to talk to you about stories and storytelling in yeah. your life. Um, yeah. You know, and how they may have influenced your career as a photographer and visual artist. So I wonder if you can think about whether there were any stories or storytellers in your past, your childhood or your formative years, um, either visual or textual, um, who may have had an influence on you um, personally. Ah, okay. Well, <clears throat> my father was a storyteller, so he had a huge influence on me. My father was a writer and a poet and a producer and a screenwriter and a, um, uh, uh, he wrote plays and musicals. And so he, he had a huge influence on me and language was always incredibly important to him. And as a reaction to that, I didn't really learn to read until I was about nine or 10. I think I was dyslexic, um, although nobody talked about dyslexia back in the sort of um, early 50s. But I think I was dyslexic because spelling has always been a tremendous problem for me. And um, the arrival of computers and word and spell correcting software has been a great boon and benefit both to the quality of my writing and the, um, the ability to cover up my inefficient spelling. But my dad was a huge influence in many different ways. I mean, his storytelling was important. And his, he was always very 
keen on literature and plays and films as well. So yeah, all of that had a huge influence. And I think because I was always a very visual person, and I have no idea when that first started, except I'm just thinking back now, I, the visual aspects of all forms of theatre and film have always interested me and photography. Um, so yes, all of those things have been incredibly important to me from pretty much as early as I can remember. And our whole lifestyle really was based upon storytelling in one form or another. Are there other aspects of your life or your lifestyle that you remember that were that feel like they were kind of immersed in stories? Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's difficult to know because my father wrote, like most writers, he wrote an awful lot about what he knew. And, and some of that was about not us directly, not the family directly, but his background in the East End of London um that was a played a big part especially in his early in his early career and so it filtered through it infiltrated it it its impact on all of us our lives it revolved around his career you know as he became successful you know our the standards of our life improved and and so it was all connected with his ability to write and to communicate and to do so successfully. So in that sense, storytelling has been an incredibly major part of my life. But I think that I've always, now whether it was in some sort of reaction to him as a writer, I've always, I've always been much more interested in, in the visual interpretation how you get it on the stage, how you get it on the screen, how you get it in a photograph. That's always interested me more than actually writing about it. Mm. Um, and I've, I've always felt that storytelling was an important aspect of my photography. And in my early days as a photographer, back in London in the 1960s, I actually did a lot of book covers. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and I loved that. In fact, it was probably one of the most exciting, creatively exciting periods of my life. So what would happen um, would be that an editor at the publisher would supply me <clears throat> with a paragraph of an, what they felt were important aspects of a particular book. I, usually there wasn't time to read the book. Um, but I would get these sort of potted praises of the book, plus a paragraph or so of things that they thought might make a cover. And then I would discuss with the art director, we'd come up with a concept and I'd go off and I'd do it. And the budgets were so small, they were so infinitesimal that um, I had to do everything myself. So I, had, I did the makeup. So I did everything. I mean, I, 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 I had a sort of part time assistant in those late 60s days and I used to use him um, to experiment on my makeup. <laughs> we used we used something because I was doing uh, thrillers and detective stories and 
murder stories. There were a lot of corpses involved. So I'd send him home with a bullet hole in his forehead and he'd go on the <laughs> London tube, sort of apparently bleeding profusely from a great hole in his forehead, things like that. And I, um, I built sets out of, you know, paper and sticks and, and I had a wonderful time. It was creatively extremely expressive and, and enjoyable. And of course, directly linked to storytelling. So I was, I was trying to capture the feeling of the book in a dramatic visual way. Um, and I think I must have done, I don't, I don't want to get the figures wrong, but round about 60 or 70 book jackets in quite a focused period. And it led me to a very important working relationship with a man who owned one of the stages at Pinewood Studios. And Pinewood Studio was um, one of the biggest London film studios. And it, would, it had been owned by a huge company called J. Arthur Rank. Mm -hmm. They're like Warner Brothers or, or you know, Universal. And it was at a point when the big studios were beginning to change the way they functioned. And this guy, his name was Cliff Cully. He took over what was called the matte studio. I won't go into matte painting, but basically it's a special effect whereby you film part of a scene and then a matte artist draws or paints the rest of the scene. And uh, it's a fantastic skill, wonderful part of filmmaking in the, in the, nine, in the 20th century. And um, I loved it. Now he had a little stage and I met him I can't remember how I met him, but I met him and I told him about my book jackets and how I wanted to expand the way I did them, make them make them more elaborate. And I started doing them on his stage and he would paint backgrounds and uh, I would have all the all the facilities of Pinewood Studios for a fraction of of the money it was a wonderful relationship i mean i made no money out of the book jackets it all went in <laughs> to the car but i loved it and i learned so much about lighting about casting styling doing makeup bullet holes and special effects i mean you know we did a, a bond type james bond type spoof series and we had boats on fire and flames coming out of you know it was really exciting uh great fun and i spent all the money on the job but I, I i learned so much it was a fantastic time and all directly related to storytelling and and make-believe and fantasy and yeah it was a wonderfully creative period and thinking about you know even your you know portraits of of people like Jimi hendrix and stones you know i mean were you thinking of all these people as characters and and do you think that some of them thought of themselves as characters wow that's interesting um that's an interesting question it's a it's it, it's a question that i've never really thought about or been asked about i think that when you photograph musicians certainly in the way that i photograph musicians because because in general, they came to me, they came to my studio. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a studio based photographer. And I have been since I started. That doesn't mean to say I don't work on location. And I 
have shot a lot of live photography, but primarily I'm a studio based photographer and my subjects come to me. And part of the process is not so much looking at them as characters. In fact, I think looking at them as real people who perform, looking at them as performers, but recognizing they're real people mm -hmm. and real people don't real people don't really like having their pictures taken in general. I mean, I think that is changing now as our culture and society changes. But back then, people generally you could assume and be safe that people didn't like having their pictures taken. But Jimi Hendrix, the performer, had to do it. It was part of the job. And I think recognizing that, understanding that, communicating with the person on that basis. I understand you're not really very comfortable in front of the camera, but we have to promote your record. We have to do your cover. We have to get you out there. And photography is really an important part of the job. And so it was a question of engaging with people and not necessarily creating a character, but trying to understand the character they wanted to project. And of course, with with young men, and so many of the people I photographed were young men in their late teens, early 20s. You know, in general, you could sum their desires up as to being, you know, sexy. <laughs> you know, they all they all really <laughs> wanted to be sexy, you know, and and in one way or another. So that that was that was really a big part of the job, I think, not not seeing them as characters, but helping them find the character that they could be in order to communicate what they wanted to be as a musician. It's a clumsy way of putting it, but I think that sort of sums it up. No, I think that's that's really good. I mean, did you was that collaboration more often unspoken or was it uh was it often really explicit? I think it was explicit. I, I, I don't think it was that discussed that much at the beginning, but I think that quite soon. So for instance, I think when I met the Stones, which was late 64, and I started working with them, I think around about April 65, I don't think we, we sat down to discuss what they would project in the photographs. But by the time I was working with Hendrix in 67, early in 67, I think I'd refined my process somewhat. I mean, I had to, <laughs> because when I started working with the Stones, you know, I, I was only a couple of years into my career. I was only 18. You know, I, I had to evolve quite quickly and, and you learn by your mistakes, or at least you improve by recognizing your limitations and your mistakes. and. And, and working on it. So by 67, you know, I hope I was a better photographer. And I and I with with Jimmy, I was able to discuss it perhaps more more implicitly. Um, but usually, I mean, I've always seen it as a collaboration, even if it's an unspoken collaboration. And I've always seen that I've always felt that it was more important to understand my subject's music rather than necessarily like it you know i didn't care very much for hendrix's music the first time i heard it it was i found it raucous and 
and it, it went over my head. I didn't get it. Uh, I mean, I grew to get it, but initially when I first heard him, I just thought, but what I saw immediately was this extraordinary vision, this, you know, extraordinary looking man. And I, I you know, I, regardless of what he was playing, I wanted to photograph him and try and get that across. But always at the same time trying to get across, trying to touch the human being, you know, because that's, for instance, with Jimmy, with most of the pictures of Jimmy, that's what moves people, I think, that they, they, they see a person, you know, not just the image. So it, it's, it's, um, it's quite complex and it doesn't bear a huge amount of scrutiny, but, and a lot of it's instinctive, but, but uh, yes, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a collaborative relationship, which in most cases is discussed or spoken and more and more as the, as the times progress uh, by by the mid 70s even the early 70s um artists are becoming much more uh, knowing about what they want to project and so we have discussions specific discussions about it not just about you know oh, my nose is too big can you photograph me from this angle so it looks smaller not just sort of rubbish like that but but much more explicit about you know what should i be wearing or how should i present this or can you help me with this because i really don't know whether it's right or not and we you know one has those sort of conversations and then you have artists like kate bush who are very theatrical and and you know you want to express you want to try and capture something tell the story so when she she had an album called the kick inside which I repackaged for the American market because the Americans didn't like the initial, uh, the original British sleeve. I put her in a box, you know, with with her not contorted, but in such a way that she is apparently kicking inside the box. And yeah, it's not it's not rocket science, but it it helps tell the story and 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 sell the album and relate the artist to 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 what they're selling and then you used the same box on the cover of lionheart right yes we did yeah i don't throw anything away you know uh, i stuck the box in my garden no actually it was in the shed um i yeah I, we kept the box i didn't know why we didn't use it for any other shoot until except for lionheart but it was it seemed perfect i don't think there was I don't think many people made any sort of subliminal connection between the two albums. Maybe they did. Nobody's really ever said that to me. It just she needed a perch and uh, in the attic, which we built in the studio. It's a set. So there's storytelling, you know, very vivid, powerful storytelling just in building a set goes back to everything I was saying earlier on about my, my interest in the visual storytelling um yeah, i mean that was you know that was one of the the sessions that i really was thinking of in terms of storytelling because it's such yeah. a clear uh you know fantasy that you're exploring with her you know yeah absolutely and i mean it, it the there's there is i mean when she when we talked about uh the lionheart cover I thought she was recounting a dream she had, but it turned out that it was a dream that her brother had had. 
uh, which she liked and relayed to me about this young girl who goes up to, I think, her grandmother's attic and finds an animal costume hidden in the in in the attic. And from there, we 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 constructed Lionheart. And I I can't remember whether the animal whether I chose the animal or she chose the animal, or we had a discussion about it. I know that I rented the lion's head from a fancy dress shop, and then we had the body made so that it fitted her, you know, perfectly. Uh, and as I say, she needed a perch. And so the the box, the kick inside box, just, it, it was the right thing to do without being too, um, I think, obvious about the connection with the previous album. It, to me, it represented, you know, her sort of coming into her own after the first album, which, you know, became such a smash and there were so many expectations and, you know, her in the lion suit to me said, I'm, I am the lion, you know, and I'm taking ownership of that. Yes, that's interesting, I, you know, and I mean, you could also say she's coming out, literally coming out, you know, she's coming out of the box. Uh, and she's, un, you know, she's free and she's unrestrained. And of course, putting having a male lion's head seemed to me to be quite important. Um, it seemed to be more powerful. Um, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure how much scrutiny any of this stands up to. We certainly, you know, it was most of the time, I think we were having fun. You know, we, yes, we were trying very hard to create a really good package. I was always very conscious of the fact that what you created had to be a poster, a press photo. It had to sell. I mean, you know, um, I was always very clear that we were selling. That was the job. I mean, we were selling and I always wanted to try and make it as creative and as artistic and as true to the artist and as beautiful of the artist um um as i could make it but we're selling i mean this is why the original um album cover the, the original british uh, kick inside cover didn't work you know this is why nobody liked it at emi because it wasn't a good selling cover you couldn't work with it or use it and so um that's an important part of what i do it's and and that is storytelling as well communicating with the buying public, with the marketplace, what you're trying to do, selling Absolutely. a story, showing them, telling them a story. But did you ever have, uh, you know, conflicts between what you saw as being the right approach and what the record company or the artist wanted to project? Well, not, not often, actually, because I, because the, you have to be very open when you i'm not really i'm not taking the photographs for myself the subject is always the hero and so i've got to try and put myself in their shoes in their place so but there is a there, <laughs> there was a band and they were very good they were a british band called Smokey, and they came from a little town called bradford and for their first album um, I saw them as a sort of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, a British Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And I wanted to do a sort of 
Now I can't know, I don't, I can't remember the name of the album. They did a great, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young did a great album cover with Henry Diltz, I think, when they were all dressed as cowboys on the- Deja Vu. Anyway, I can't remember what, maybe Deja Vu, I can't remember. But that was the influence. And, and I got this, I got a really strong bee in my bonnet about this is who they were. And it was, <laughs> I think it was the only time when I really got it wrong. We did a lovely cover and we did a fantastic session, but actually they just weren't those people. It, it was an interesting situation where they made great music. And in some ways, I think their music might've even had a bit of Neil Young to it. I don't know now, I haven't listened to it for ages. But I was completely wrong in my interpretation. They just didn't like it. They wanted to be pop stars. You know, they wanted to wear tight leather trousers and have big bulges in their crutches. And they wanted to be sexy rock stars. They didn't mm -hmm. want to be funky. And I thought Bradford was a great, great place. I even on the inner sleeve, I, I got into this thing about, do you know what I mean by stonewalling? You know that in that in the north of England and also where I live down in the Cornwall, but in the north of England, the Lake District, and there's a lot of stonewalling. So they build dry stone walls, and it's very textural. It's very pretty. It's particularly in cheap country, and I had this feeling that Bradford ended at a stone wall and there was a stone there was a stone wall and then there was a field and then there was the city the other side of the stone wall and i you know and then there was a beautiful um the viaduct that as we had a steam train driving across it i just had this sort of ridiculously stupid romantic idea of, of where they came from that, that it was important and i think we did a lovely cover i mean it was all used and everything and it was all hand tinted in a sort of old fashioned way, but it was just so out of, it was so out of sync with the band's story. You know, they wanted to get away from Bradford. They didn't want to go back to Bradford. So anyway, so, but, but, but most of the time, um, I didn't get it that wrong. <laughs> when you're actually in the studio, you know, you've done all the preparation, um, but it comes to the time of the shoot, what is it that you contribute? How is it that you approach uh, letting the story come through? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, that's, an, that's also another interesting question. In the studio, in a way, you contribute everything, everything, really. You know, the studio is a dark space. You switch a light on, you put up a background, you tell your subject where to stand, and then you have to try and find a way of bringing your subject out and communicating a feeling to the camera. And, and so you create a space in which the subject can do that. And you create an atmosphere and a vibe between the two of you uh, with the camera in between. Um, so that that person can give something of themselves to the camera and 
but they look with the lighting and the clothes that they're wearing, and the background that you give them, they look, you know, like a rock star, but they give you something human to communicate with when you look back at the picture. That's why most of my pictures, the subject is looking straight out because then their eyes will follow you wherever you are. <laughs> and, and um, you know, that's what you want. You want your subject, you want your viewer to feel they're looking straight into the heart and soul of your subject. So you've got to try and create everything and, and give them the space in which to do that. And some people do it naturally and instinctively and other people need a lot of encouragement and, and others need, you know, a, a space to occupy or a set to lean on. They need more support. Jimi Hendrix just looked great. You know, I, I didn't really have to do much with him except make him feel that he could give me something and that I wouldn't betray it. You know, that, 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 that I was working for him. I was, I was, he was going to, he was going to be the hero. And I was doing everything I could to help him be that, mm. that mm -hmm. hero without imposing anything of me in the picture. And that, that was always very important to me. You know, there were an awful lot of photographers, particularly in the 60s, whose photography you could recognize almost instantly. And I never liked that. I, it always bothered me that. I mean, I came to recognize how great a lot of them were, you know, but when in my younger days, when I was, you know, um, sort of aggressive and, and full of myself, and and full of self-belief and bullshit i i um i didn't like that i didn't want my photographs to be recognizable i wanted them to be great photographs of whomever it was i was photographing you were talking about um you know doing things on shoestring doing things spontaneously you know um it seems to me like sometimes when you do things that way they actually can bring out more inner meaning than if you really, really are hyper prepared. And um, so I wonder if looking back on some of your work, you have felt that there were themes uh, there that you didn't even recognize at the time uh, that sort of have, uh, have emerged for you in retrospect. Well, I mean, inevitably a style, I, I mean, I, you know, there's a Mankiewicz style, I know that, but it wasn't a conscious thing. I've always tried to adapt myself to whatever I thought was appropriate to the subject. Um, I don't know, really, I, you know, I, I craved bigger budgets. And then when I got bigger budgets, I'm not sure whether the work was any better. I mean, I do think that a lot of the best work was when we didn't really know what the fuck we were doing. And we were just <laughs> you know, busking it, you know, when I was just, you know, breaking the rules because I didn't know there were any rules to be broken and, and, and that. And one of the things that happens as you become more experienced is that you you learn what doesn't work. You know, you learn that this isn't going to work. So when somebody comes in and they're full of 
gum and vigor and they say, you know, I want to do this. And you know, you've, you've tried to do this three, four times before, and you know that it's not going to work because they don't understand the dynamics of a camera or a studio or a light or whatever. Um, it, it, there is a big question mark as to whether you stifle that enthusiasm or whether you try it again, <laughs> sort of half in the knowledge that you're going to fail, but always with the hope that you might succeed in a way that you couldn't before. So it's, you know, experience is a great thing, but it's also um, can be a dangerous thing. It can, in, it can inhibit your um, your your uh, your expression and uh, your innovativeness and and I I've always it's always been important to me that the technical side of my photography in the studio at least um, is sort of not hidden but doesn't get in the way of the relationship with the subject so I try and get things working and set up before they arrive or while they're in the dressing room if they're having a lot of makeup and hair you know i try and do a lot of stuff a lot of prep so that it's not done in front of them or around them because then they become secondary to the technology and that's awful it's one of the problems with um one of the problems with digital as opposed to analog but it but i mean that's another discussion but i, I what i'm so i try and kept kept that not hidden, but just done out of the way, not important. You know, if a, if a light fails or something, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. You know, go and have a cup of tea in the kitchen and I'll, we'll sort it all out because nobody wants to feel that they're, uh, they're a pawn in a sort of technology game. You know, they don't want to feel that they want to always feel that they're the most important thing in the room. Sure. And, sure. Um, yeah, so I don't know whether that answers that question. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. I mean, uh, I remember one time uh, I was interviewing a composer, and after I finished interviewing him, he sort of gave me a little lecture about how I had been comparing him to too many other composers in the interview, and that really turned him off, you know, that he felt that for a good interview, you really had to not bring up too many other people. Yes, and I think that's kind of the same thing, you know, that you no, no, it's, it's want true. them to feel like they are, they are the only thing that matters in that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. I I remember going to photograph Mel Brooks in Hollywood uh, for the cover of a magazine, and like all high-powered Hollywood stars and producers, uh, we went to his his office uh, on the lot of Fox Studios, and I had this shot that I wanted to set up and I was given access to the office and I had quite a complicated lighting thing and we had it was in the days <clears throat> before a lot of uh, wireless stuff so it was all cables connected to sensors it was a it was a real problem and I had it all working beautifully and then he arrived in this sort of mad cacophony of ideas and noises and farting and thoughts and and he was absolutely crazy and, and lovely. I mean, we, we had a wonderful time. And, um, and I told him what I was wanting to do. And he said, Oh, yeah, you know, that's great. That's great. And I sat him down and we were about to do the Polaroid just just to make sure 
everything working and I click the button and nothing, nothing happened. And of course, being Mel Brooks, he straight away started telling me what wasn't working, what was wrong. You got to do this, you got to do that, take that wire out, put that wire in, do this, do that, do that. And he turned the whole thing into a Mel Brooks comedy routine, which was funny, but it wasn't hugely helpful. That's great. So, so but we, yeah, anyway, we got it working. Again, I'm not sure whether that was an answer to a question. No, these are great. This is great. Um, I did want to actually talk to you about sort of the new digital processes versus the darkroom and, and how that might have changed your approach to storytelling in your photographs or how you sort of shape uh, the texture and, and the whole story that you're working on. Well, without getting too bogged down in the differences between film and, and digital, I think that um, I touched upon it just now. I think the one of the problems with digital is that I'm, I'm thinking this through because it's, it's it, I find it quite a complicated thing. So when I, I, I'm fortunate in as much as I really digital photography only began to creep into my commercial work, to my commercial career for the last few years. And I didn't shoot much music stuff on digital. Um, um, and, you know, the bulk 99.9% .9 of my stuff has always been on film. So that's taken care of. Um, and digital has enabled me to revisit, you know, all that stuff, all that material again, and, you know, give my images a new life because they it wasn't practical or feasible to use some images in an analog way but in a digital way i can scan the negative or the transparency and i can give them a new life so that's been wonderful and i've really enjoyed that hugely um, but in terms of shooting with digital one of the things that i hate about it is the way everybody in the room wants to see what you've just taken there's no workflow. And so I work, I call it pretentiously um, a, 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 an analog pace in a digital space. So <laughs> I unplug the camera, there's no monitor, there's no place where you can go and see the pictures. I unplug the camera, um, I sort of use the, the monitor purely uh, in the way I would have used a Polaroid and then I unplug the camera and I do it and I shoot 12 shots in succession the same as I would have done on a roll of medium format film and so I recreate the the analog pace of the of the the analog atmosphere the analog approach um, but the end result is a digital file and I find that that works because the see the moment Everybody wants to look at the monitor, the makeup, the hair, the subject, the manager, the fucking security guy. They all want to look at the monitor. They're all seeing something else. The makeup person is only looking at the makeup. The clothes person is just 
and the artist is just looking at the pimple on her fucking nose. And I don't want any of that. I don't want that focus. And you lose sight of what you're trying to do. And so I cut all that out. I don't want that. And um, which is probably why nobody asks me to take pictures anymore. But I, I don't want that. I, I can't bear that. It's like I, I never liked taking photographs with other photographers in the room, which is why I was no good as a, as a press photographer. I couldn't go to press calls. I just got completely inhibited by, other, by the presence of other photographers. And I don't want people seeing my work until it's ready to be seen. So the last thing I want to do is to have someone, you know, looking at the image on a monitor when it's not ready, it's not finished, it's not there. And um, yeah, so so my that's my feeling about from a storytelling point of view. I for me, I have to try and recapture the pace of an analog shoot, um, and that I find that works actually rather well because I like the digital result, um, and uh, yeah, I think and and also I, you know I have much more involvement in a digital image than I used to have. I mean, in the very early days, um, back in the 60s, when I was working with the Stones, you know, I was doing all my own processing and all my printing in house. But I mean, it, it soon my focus was on taking taking pictures and and um, I got somebody in to do the processing, to do a lot of the printing. And I lost touch with that. And then in the 70s, we started using out, outside labs um, because they were more efficient and because you could often have a, a shot you know, processed while you were still shooting and get stuff back. Um, and and so I lost contact with with that side of things. And, and now, you know, I can shoot digitally and I've got them here and I can start working on them. And I've even got you can see behind me, I've got a, a large format printer and I can make nice big, you know, 24 by 30 prints. So um, it's it's much more in house again, which I enjoy. Um, but as I say, I don't like everybody looking, looking at the picture and I hate look them. I hate the pace of it. You know, I hate that when you see a photographer shooting and they take something, they look at it and they, they and I, it doesn't work for me. It never did. I mean, having said all that, when we were shooting film, we always shot Polaroid and I, I used to shoot Polaroid until I got to a point where I felt that we were, you know, we were there. But it's not the same as looking at a digital image on a monitor and being able to zoom in on a filling in a tooth in your mouth or a pimple on the end of your nose. You know, it's it's different. I guess that also makes me wonder, you know, how you feel about this new era where, you know, stars are constantly available via social media and posting their own photos of themselves and, uh, you know, trying to share in a way that feels less artificial. Um, but ultimately, it still is all a show, in my opinion. Do you yeah. have any figure feelings about that? It is show business after all. <laughs> I mean, it always has been. Um, well, the, 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 the pose non pose has always been a problem. You know, there were always the artists who, who would come to a studio and say, I don't want to pose. I don't want to pose. Just shoot me now. Shoot me. 
<laughs> or something. <laughs> and I'd say, well, this is a pose. This is ridiculous. You know what? Do you want to cover your face? In that case, cover your face. It's but let me make it work so that it's a great the quality is nice and the lighting is nice, but you can't just wander around the studio and expect me to to shoot you when you're not ready. That's not that's just ridiculous. So we'd all the quite regularly, you know, a few times every year, there would be somebody like that. I, you'd have to educate them, sit them down and educate them and explain to them what 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 was going on here, you know, that why they hadn't in, liked photography and the plus it was an educational process. Um, nowadays, I don't know, I photographed a band a couple of years ago, and I was asked to photograph them for a project. And I asked to see them, I hadn't seen them, and there wasn't going to be an opportunity to meet them properly, which was disappointing, but that was that. So they sent me a load, they sent me links to I, Facebook and, and Instagram and something else, MySpace. I guess I can't remember. And all the photographs were incredibly amateur photographs because photography has become, well, yeah, you know, people, anybody can take a picture with an Apple iPhone. And if it works, somebody will post it. <laughs> if it doesn't work, somebody will post it too, I expect. But, um, but the pictures aren't very good and and often they aren't very good and and you can see that facebook and other places are just uh, littered with programs and gurus and books and different publications all telling you how you can make your your um your iphoneography more professional so it, it's become a big thing and it, it devalues professional photography, I think, considerably. But I'm going to go back to this band. So they sent me these pictures and I got a sense of who they were, but there wasn't a single shot that I would have wanted used to promote me. But they didn't appear to have any professional photographs taken of them. Anyway, we, we did the session and they really enjoyed it and they came up to me afterwards and they said you know we've never we've never done a session like that before and uh, i said well you know that's great uh you know the, but that's that's how i think it should be that's certainly how i shoot a session and they loved the pictures and i really did half expect that they might ask me to do another session with them and i never heard from them again and I think that the problem is that what you were saying about a more spontaneous, a more natural approach seems to be more important to people than the sort of polished quality photography that I pursued for, for 50 years. I suppose really what I did is completely out of time now. It's out of date now. People look back at my pictures and they love them and they love the subjects and they love the quality of the photography. But actually, it doesn't really have a place anymore. And, and I think that in terms of storytelling, 
I don't know. I think that we're, we're bombarded with a zillion images all the time. We don't have a moment to really study them. We don't, they just, oh, that's good, put it over there. That's good, no, no good, no good, no good, that's good, that's good. And it, we're, I'm not really being very articulate about this, but I, I, I do feel that we've lost something. And of course I would feel that, you know, I'm a 76 year old uh, analog photographer with a 55 year career. Um, and it's a, it's a new world and, and the question of whether or not it's, I'll tell you a little story that relates to this. I was making um, my television series called uh, um, about music photography. And um, one of the subjects was a very uh, young, powerful female, uh, hip hop singer, I suppose that's what she was, with a huge Instagram following. I mean, 1.2 million, I think she had, a big following. And she was saying that the images that are most popular are the images that are, that she takes when she posts, when she's, I can't remember quite how she phrased it, but you know, she'd, she'd say, I'm ready for a photograph and they, somebody would take a photograph of her and they'd post it and it would get 100,000 likes. And then she'd throw a picture of her making a cup of coffee in the kitchen and it would get 250,000 likes. And I think that that illustrated this difference that's happening now, that, that, that yes, people want to see the stylized pose, but they're, once that person is established in their minds as a hero, as a star, somebody they admire and follow, they want to see them on the lavatory. They want to see them making coffee. They want to, you know, they want to see those real moments because then those people become more like them. I don't know. It's great like question. they become, no, great. They become their own paparazzi. Yeah maybe that's it they've definitely become their own paparazzi and even i remember in the 90s certain artists wanting to really control their own photography employ a full-time photographer own everything own the camera you know own everything and just have somebody press the trigger you know that was happening in the 90s um and then digital you know, change that gave gave everybody a huge control, not just on on the finished result, you know, the whole sort of Photoshop waist narrowing, butt enlarging, boob extending, whatever it was, um, but but the control of of the media, you know, through social media, you control everything, not just how you look, but who sees it, where it's seen. So, yeah, so, you know, it's just that's how it is, I guess. I wonder, um, you know, thinking about all these people that you photographed in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, have you ever had a desire to go back and revisit those people? And um, <laughs> obviously, a lot of them you can't, um, but certainly some of them are still around. and. 
they're they're definitely not as beautiful as they used to be, but they might still be interesting to to see. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I I not not really. I mean, yes, you know. I mean, I think. I don't know. You know, if, if, if they rang me up this afternoon and asked me if I'd like to photograph the stones, would I do it? Or I don't know. I, I suppose I would. I don't know. But I don't really long for it because, no, I don't, I don't long for it. I don't really think about it very much. In fact, um, you know, I did go back and photograph the stones for a magazine in 1982, which was, let's say, uh, 67 to 82 so it's it's a good 15 years uh later uh, and it was it was a fantastic experience but it was an awful um experience as well i mean it was a very strange experience um and i don't think you can go back i mean because the relationship that i had with my subjects is not something that you can recreate now you, you, you couldn't do it now. And I think I'd be very disappointed, you know, having to work, you know, if I, the Stones is the best example because they're still going, albeit in a somewhat different form, but Mick and Keith are definitely there. Um, and, you know, but I, I, I don't know whether I could cope with the, with the layers around them. When I worked with them, we were all together. We were hand in hand. I was part of the gang. There was no difference between them and me uh, and we were sharing and doing everything together and experimenting together you it, it couldn't be like that now it just couldn't be and and i think that would be disappointing so i don't really want to be disappointed i i'd rather have such great memories and great photographs um and if i you know, if I ever do photograph a, a band or a musician again, it, it will be, um, you know, a current artist, not 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 some old. I was going to say fart, but I don't really mean that. Some <laughs> old artist who I years ago. It wouldn't. I mean, I did. I I saw um, I saw Mick and Charlie a few years back when they had their exhibitionism, their art exhibition exhibit. And I went to the opening of that and I had a lot of things in it and they were lovely. I mean, we embraced and hugged and laughed and giggled and it was really lovely. But working with them would be a completely different thing. And I, I don't want to, wouldn't want to do that. Interesting. Well, Jared, I really appreciate your time today. Um, it's great talking to you. And uh, I think it was very insightful and, and I appreciate your sharing all your observations. Well, great, Dave. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. It's nice to be asked very different questions and to be thinking about it all afresh. So thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed myself. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.